Welcome to the 17th Wonder Space. It's great to have you on board, especially if this is your first Wonder Space orbit. My name is Steve Cole, and since September 2020, I've been asking the same six questions to people from around the world. The questions revolve around life and wonder, places of reset and stories of hopefulness, which I think we need more than ever. The setting for all of our interviews is a virtual window seat on the space station, 250 miles above Earth, where we see everything from a different perspective. This week our journey takes us from the UK to the borders of Turkey and Syria, and sharing these views with us from this ultimate window seat, we welcome Joe Murphy and Joe Robertson, who are actors and playwrights and the founders of Good Chance. I first met Joe and Joe five years ago on their refugee camp in Calais in northern France. And I think what they and their team have created and developed since then is truly remarkable. A shorter version of this episode, together with footage of this journey to Syria, can be found on our website, ourwonder.space, where you will also find the previous 16 episodes. I start by asking Joe and Joe, from this seat 250 miles above Earth, which city or country would you want us to fly over and why? The first person to speak is Joe Murphy. I've stayed quite close to home for this one. It felt right for whatever reason. And I went a little bit further back into my childhood and I went to Holy Island, to Linda's Farm, um, just off the coast of, uh, of Newcastle. And to a school visit that I had when I was just going into Lower Sixth. And at certain times you can walk to this island, but at other times it, you have to take a boat. Um, and I think it was the place that I first realised that I believe in something more than what I can see. I believed in ghosts when I went there for the first time, partly due to Father Richard, who was a very naughty priest um, and a very brilliant, brilliant priest um, who never felt entirely like a Catholic, all to his credit. Um, but yeah, I would fly over Linda's farm and see what's going on there. How wonderful. I've gone much farther than you, Joe, but, but strangely closer to you. If we're here over the earth, I'd love to go to Tokyo. I'd love to see Tokyo from this uh, stratosphere, um, which was where we sort of met, right? Um, we, we were at university together and we were in a play together, a Shakespeare play, that toured to Tokyo. And that's where we met and sort of had this crazy, beautiful, wonderful summer together and performed mm. The Taming of the Shrew in, uh, at the Metropolitan Theatre in Tokyo and then at Saitama. Um, and had just this, this wonderful experience with these amazing Japanese audiences who knew the play far better than we did. Um, and we explored and sort of got to know this, this whole new place and each other. And then after that, we wrote our first play together. So I was thinking that would be a lovely place to, to hover over. I'd also like to draw attention, Steve, to the fact that I played his servant in that play and have done so ever since. <laughs> well, of course, of course. I was Lucentio uh, and he helps me with my bags. Please give us a glimpse into your life story so far with an emphasis on what you are doing currently. 
Joe and I met at university, as as Joe said, me playing his servant. And uh, and after that, we moved to London and tried to, to learn to write. But um, it was really an experience abroad in a very strange place that brought us close together and I think probably made us realise what was happening in the world for the very first time, which was when Joe and I went to, to Calais, to the jungle, which I don't think we understood in any way at the time. We had no real contact with, with people who'd been forced to migrate before. And I think we were imagining that we were stepping into some sort of exceptional moment, um, a, a, a moment that, that was unusual. Since then, it's become very clear that migration and forced migration is not unusual, not exceptional. Um, but back then, it seemed to be the case. And we arrived in this place, the jungle of 10,000 people from 25 different places, many, many different languages, cultures, traditions. This, I'm hesitant to say a melting pot. It was called the jungle. It was a jungle. That's the most accurate way of describing it. And people were struggling for food, for shelter, for warmth. Christmas and the the coldness of that time of the year was coming. And we decided that it would be a good thing to build a space for lots of people to be together. And that was the idea initially, and that was all it was. We'll just build a space. And once we'd built it with, with lots of people, and my God, that day was amazing when with together with people from so many different countries we built a building together and and it got up and the roof got over and we all decided that it made sense to call it a theater and we programmed it for seven months together we saw plays from iran we saw dances from eritrea we saw iranians attempt stand-up comedy for the first time i mean we saw the whole gamut of what this world has to offer culturally and we saw it take place in one building. We thought that those seven months were going to be exceptional, that they wouldn't happen again. But since then, we've built an organisation that builds those theatres in many different places. We've called the theatre Good Chance, um, and they're domes, beautiful domes that feel democratic and open to everyone. We've built them in Paris, in London, New York. We should have been in Tijuana on the border of the US right now, actually. Um, but for very obvious reasons, we're not. Um, but we will be, um, because there are ongoing problems there. And it's been an evolution that has been full of surprises, really difficult surprises, because the truth is that we're a company that don't really want to be in existence. We don't want to have to, to be speaking to people and helping integration happen between different communities. We wish that that could happen completely organically. But it doesn't. And Good Chance exists, I suppose, to, to show artists that we can be helpful in situations like that. That the kind of gregariousness, the naivety, the fun that artists have is a really essential tool in bringing communities together in this world that we live in. Yeah, we've, we've worked with some absolutely amazing people, some amazing artists from all over the world. And our experience of working with people who've been forced to flee their homes is not of people who need help, although there is a need for shelter and food and medicine in the places we work. Actually, our experience is of, a, of people with incredible skills, incredible artistic traditions, and absolutely vital things to say that demand to be heard. And I suppose 
Good Chance builds the stage and, and the platform for, for those artists to hone their craft and, and to say what they need to say. Um, and actually this, this year, when this is beamed back down to earth, we're going to embark on, on our most ambitious project yet, which is in a way the culmination of, of all of the last five years of work uh, since, since our first days in the jungle. And we're going to go on a walk um, from the, the border of Turkey and Syria all the way to Manchester in the United Kingdom. And we're going to walk with a young girl. She's called Little Amal. Uh, she's based on a character who is in a play that Joe and I created uh, with lots of people from the jungle. She's from Aleppo, she's 10 years old, and the only difference between her and the many hundreds of thousands of unaccompanied kids who've fled into Europe over the last five years is that Amal is a giant, four metre tall, beautiful, bold puppet. Uh, she's created by the the amazing artist um, Handspring, who made Warhorse. And she's, she's brought to life by this team of puppeteers from all across the world, some of whom have made that journey themselves, some of whom are from the countries that we'll stop in. And the provocation of the walk is, this girl is walking through your town and your village and your city, how do you welcome her? And we've, we've made that provocation to big theatres, opera houses, arts organisations, public companies, but also schools and mosques and churches and all aspects of civil society. Uh, and we're going to stop in every place and celebrate with the people we meet. And it's a real opportunity to bring communities together, as Joe was saying, to unite communities, to create a sense of international solidarity at a time when I think we're more divided than we've ever been. And a bold way of, of, of reclaiming the idea of welcome, uh, because human beings do welcome pretty pretty well and we should we should celebrate that where on earth is your place of reset or recharge my place of reset is the cottage it's called just the cottage in my head and that's how important it is um it's on the hampshire berkshire border so again not not far away from from where i live um belongs to two dear friends sabrina and tom and my partner and i go there as often as we can, and we do nothing when we're there. We do nothing. We look at deer. We try to chase rabbits. That's all we do. We might go to a shop, but that is the absolute limit. We will sleep in the grass and things like that. And so the cottage can only ever be called the cottage for that reason. It is very, very beautiful. I'm very jealous of the cottage, although I do go there a lot. Um, <laughs> um, but well, in normal times, my place of reset and recharge is sitting in a in a theatre. But you know, when without that, I think my my macro recharge is Whitby, where I go every Christmas with all my family um, from Hull, and we get together, rent a little cottage theme here um, on Henrietta Street, up 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 the hill, looking out at the at the sea. Um, that's my that's my annual reset. What wonder of the natural world excites you the most? I've only actually seen one of the natural wonders of the world, and that's the harbour at Rio de Janeiro. Uh, with you, actually, Joe. Um, one yes. of my favourite cities and times. Um, but I think if, I, if, if one excites me more than any of the others, it's the aurora borealis. And I, th I think it goes back to what you said at the start, about you know the belief in ghosts, the belief in something more, and the idea that 
there is a spectacle of solar wind that happens that can be seen from any one place at, at, at very vague and indefined times is is unbelievably wondrous to me. You stole my beautiful thing. <laughs> Because it is mine. Okay, I'm, I'm going to have to go the opposite direction. I'm going to go deep. I'm going to go deep down into the earth, into the water. Um, one of the formative experiences when Joe and I first met, we used to go swimming every night um, in, uh, in a place called Port Meadow in Oxford. Um, we often used to go naked. We used to go shouting poetry as we, as we went in. Um, and there was something genuine, I think, about our belief that once we dived in and said a line of poetry that we loved, we would come back out and something would be different. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't necessarily be able to say what that thing was, but that we would feel it and somehow distantly know it. And it, it, it might actually have worked back then, Joe. <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd love to know if it still works. We need to do that again. <laughs> And we didn't call it wild swimming. We called it swimming. <laughs> because that's what it was. It was, it was just getting your kit off and running in. <laughs> I don't know if that counts as a wonder of the world, but it certainly felt like it. So should we say Victoria Falls then? Yeah, great, great, great. That's where we did it. Exactly. I remember now. Yeah, yeah, good, good. What is your story of hopefulness? about a person, business or non-profit who were doing amazing things for the world? Well, Joe and I have been doing some research into the, the UN Convention on Climate Change and on this series of conferences that has got us to, well, Glasgow next year and that has sort of defined the targets and, you know, represents a glimmer of hope for the, for the natural world. And, and just speaking to the people involved, you know, the sort of the people from the UN Secretariat, the people involved in creating the protocols that form the basis of, you know, international law around climate change is incredibly inspiring. And we're looking a lot at the early ones like Kyoto, where really it was the first time that 200 countries came together and agreed that something had to be done. And this idea that you can get that many people, that many different countries with different interests and needs to agree is sort of unbelievably inspiring and, and gives me hope and I think there's a lot of lessons there at a time when you know as I say it feels like we're not agreeing and that the idea of consensus is out of our grasp. Nice. I'd like to bring in a guy called Jaron Lanier who I've just become obsessed with who aside from having the best dreadlocks in the world, um, is also the founder of uh, virtual reality and a really fascinating figure uh, in Silicon Valley and I think is probably asking some of the most important questions about technology at the moment and what it is, the ethics of it, asking what choices we're making and if we understand what choices we're making about the world that we're going into. I think it's undoubtedly a much quicker world and a much more seemingly connected world than than we've ever had but I don't know about you guys but the speed of the world that we live in now is a real challenge to me the way that we take in our news the 24-hour cycle the addiction to so many newspapers and you know headlines that I it's embarrassing to even talk about and it makes me reflect on the internet as a whole and how encouraging it is of us to to keep using it 
I've made a real effort during lockdown to try and fall in love with books again. And I remembered back to listening to the great uh, literary critic Carol Bloom talking about reading being related to thinking and the pace of reading dictating to an extent the pace of thinking. And I just wonder if the way that we read now and see now online is causing us to think faster, be faster, and, and as a result to probably not understand what we're doing as much as we should. And I think Jaron Lanier is, is asking those kinds of questions and, and I hope that more of us can listen or at least try to provide some answers. As we prepare to re-enter, what insight, wisdom or question would you like to share with us? The insight I would like to share, I think I really learned this year. Um, and it's weird talking about wisdom or insights because any wisdom I have, I think I've stolen from someone else. But I suppose <laughs> that's that's the point, isn't it? Um, but I... I think this year I learned a lot about humility and humbleness. And I think one of the things that really helped that bizarrely was the pandemic that we've all lived through this, this huge, great monumental thing that really none of us can control. And we can control how much we prepare and control how much we respond, but the actual control of all the outcomes is beyond us. And as soon as I think I learned that this year, I, I was able to let go a bit and relax into that, something universal. And that, that's not to say we can't change the world, because I, I fervently believe we can, but, but we can't control the world and we can't control other people. So that's the insight I have to share. Humility is the great conclusion, I think, Joe. I think that's a, that's a beauty. Humility is endless. As soon as you accept it, you go, oh, wait, this enormous sense of responsibility for all the world's uh, wrongs can sort of lift off my chest and actually you can start to be useful. <laughs> That's it, I've remembered it. The, the only thing we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. Yeah. T.S. Eliot. That's beautiful. It has, it has been a year of recognising how little we can recognise, hasn't it? Yeah. What insight do you have to offer, Joe? Well, as you know, I've had a really... I think I've had quite a rough year, um, as we all have, in really different ways. Mine hasn't been so related to lockdown, I don't think. Um, but I, I have a condition called epilepsy, and, um, and it's been particularly bad this year. It's, it's one of those conditions that's very difficult to define in as much as you don't know when it's going to affect you, um, i.e. when you're going to have a, a seizure and you don't know how much you're going to be out of action after having a seizure. Um, so it's a very difficult, um, wriggly kind of condition. Um, and this year has been particularly bad, and, and I've had a few times where I've had multiple seizures in a day, and that's knocked me out for, for a few weeks, and, and it's been pretty rubbish, to be honest. But, but, with my partner Son and with Joe and with friends like Stephen and Justin and Nay and, and all the people at Good Chance, you begin to realise, I hope, that, that things that you thought were weaknesses and could only be seen as weaknesses might be peculiarities that give you strength. Um, 
you know, I, I began to notice quite how different I feel when I have a seizure and after I have a seizure. You know, I, I can see, you know, trees are slightly different colours or I touch my knee and my, my arm responds. Um, there's a kind of dissociation from the world that makes you realise that, oh, the world's anything. Our mind sits between us and the world. So we're never going to know what the world is entirely. That's dependent on our minds. And we have some sort of relationship with our minds that we'll never entirely be able to control, but nevertheless is interesting. And, and I think admitting to that in some way has made me feel a little bit calmer um, and more able to view that as a kind of superpower oh, I can see the world differently. Rather than going, I can't see the world in the way that other people see it. So that's been quite an emotional journey, to be honest. Um, and the kind of one that you can't do without friends um, and people who really love you to bits. That's a good piece of wisdom. Well, but what's the conclusion from that? I mean... That anything's up for grabs and that you can, you know, you can make of the world what you want? I don't know. Well, one of them is we need each other. That's a good one. I sort of began to think of it at one point as sim a seizure was like a play. And so when you're making a play, you want to make something that bears a resemblance to the world. So it, it operates by some of the same rules of the world of interaction so that the audience will sit and recognise oh, this is like the world, but not entirely. So I've got something to learn because it's not entirely the same as the world. I began to view seizures exactly like that. They were like the world, but they weren't entirely the world. The world looked differently because of them. And it was a kind of beautiful thing to, um, to go through in the end. To find out more about Good Chance and the walk with Little Amal, go to goodchance.org.uk. To find out more about Wonderspace, join the community or listen to the previous 16 interviews, the website is ourwonder.space, where you'll also find links to our socials. We would also encourage you to dive into the work of Atlas of the Future, Positive News and Pebble magazine, who are all brilliantly telling a different kind of story. I want to thank Joe Murphy and Joe Robertson for kicking off a new year in such a profound and honest and entertaining way. And I hope you can join us next week for more wonders and stories of hopefulness. <laughs>